Section 2 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2 Voltaire added a few further details which had been given him by Monsieur de Barneville, the successor of Monsieur de Saint-Mars, and by an old physician of the Bastille who had attended the prisoner whenever his health required a doctor, but who had never seen his face, although he had often seen his tongue and his body. He also asserted that Monsieur de Chamillart was the last minister who was in the secret, and that when his son-in-law, Marshal de la Fouillade, besought him on his knees, de Chamillart being on his deathbed to tell the name of the man in the iron mask, the minister replied that he was under a solemn oath never to reveal the secret, it being an affair of state. To all these details, which the marshal acknowledges to be correct, Voltaire adds a remarkable note. What increases our wonder is that when the unknown captive was sent to the Ile Saint-Marguerite, no personage of note disappeared from the European stage. The story of the Comte de Vermantois and the blow was treated as an absurd and romantic invention which does not even attempt to keep within the bounds of the possible, by Baron C., according to P. Marchand, Baron Quiningen, in a letter inserted in the Library of the Works of the Scholars of Europe, June 1745. The discussion was revived somewhat later, however, and a few Dutch scholars were supposed to be responsible for a new theory founded on history, the foundations proving somewhat shaky, however, a quality which it shares, we must say, with all the other theories which have ever been advanced. According to this new theory, the masked prisoner was a young foreign nobleman, groom of the chambers to Anne of Austria and the real father of Louis the Fourteenth. This anecdote appears first in a Dewey Decimo volume printed by Pierre Marteau at Cologne in 1692, which bears the title The Loves of Anne of Austria, Consort of Louis Thirteenth, with Monsieur le C.D.R., the real father of Louis Fourteenth, King of France. Being a minute account of the measures taken to give an heir to the throne of France, the influences at work to bring this to pass, and the denouement of the comedy. This libel ran through five editions, bearing date successively, 1692, 1693, 1696, 1722, and 1738. In the title of the edition of 1696, the words Cardinal de Richelieu are inserted in place of the initials C.D.R., but that this is only a printer's error everyone who reads the work will perceive. Some have thought the three letters stood for Comte de Riviere, others for Comte de Rochefort, whose memoirs, compiled by Sandras de Cortils, supply these initials. The author of the book was an orange writer in the pay of William III, and its object was, he says, to unveil the great mystery of iniquity which hid the true origin of Louis Fourteenth. He goes on to remark that the knowledge of this fraud, although comparatively rare outside France, was widely spread within her borders. The well-known coldness of Louis Thirteenth, the extraordinary birth of Louis Diodon, so-called because he was born in the twenty-third year of a childless marriage, and several other remarkable circumstances connected with the birth, all point clearly to a father other than the prince, who with great effrontery is passed off by his adherents as such. The famous barricades of Paris, and the organized revolt led by distinguished men against Louis the Fourteenth on his accession to the throne, proclaimed aloud the king's illegitimacy, so that it rang through the country, and as the accusation had reason on its side, hardly anyone doubted its truth. We give below a short abstract of the narrative, the plot of which is rather skillfully constructed. 
Cardinal Richelieu, looking with satisfied pride at the love of Gaston, Duc d'Orléans, brother of the king, for his niece, Perisiades, Madame de Combolet, formed the plan of uniting the young couple in marriage. Gaston, taking the suggestion as an insult, struck the cardinal. Père Joseph then tried to gain the cardinal's consent and that of his niece to an attempt to deprive Gaston of the throne, which the childish marriage of Louis XIII seemed to assure him. A young man, the CDR of the book, was introduced into Anne of Austria's room, who, though a wife in name, had long been a widow in reality. She defended herself but feebly, and on seeing the cardinal next day said to him, "'Well, you have your wicked will.' but take good care sir cardinal that i may find above the mercy and goodness which you have tried by many pious sophistries to convince me is awaiting me watch over my soul i charge you for i have yielded the queen having given herself up to love for some time the joyful news that she would soon become a mother began to spread over the kingdom in this manner was born louis the fourteenth the putative son of louis the thirteenth if this instalment of the tale be favorably received says the pamphleteer the sequel will soon follow in which the sad fate of c d r will be related who was made to pay dearly for his short-lived pleasure although the first part was a great success the promised sequel never appeared it must be admitted that such a story though it never convinced a single person of the illegitimacy of louis the fourteenth was an excellent prologue to the tale of the unfortunate lot of the man in the iron mask and increased the interest and curiosity with which that singular historical mystery was regarded but the views of the dutch scholars thus set forth met with little credence and were soon forgotten in a new solution the third historian to write about the prisoner of ile saint marguerite was le grand chancel he was just twenty-nine years of age when excited by ferrand's hatred of voltaire he addressed a letter from his country place Antignat in Perigord to Anne Littéraire, volume three, page one hundred eighty-eight, demolishing the theory advanced in the Siècle de Louis the Fourteenth and giving facts which he had collected whilst himself imprisoned in the same place as the unknown prisoner twenty years later. My detention in the Ile Saint Marguerite, says Le Grand Chancel, brought many things to my knowledge which a more painstaking historian than Monsieur de Voltaire would have taken the trouble to find out for at the time when i was taken to the islands the imprisonment of the man in the iron mask was no longer regarded as a state secret this extraordinary event which m de voltaire places in sixteen sixty two a few months after the death of cardinal mazarin did not take place till sixteen sixty nine eight years after the death of his eminence m de la motte guerin commandant of the island in my time assured me that the prisoner was the duc de beaufort who was reported killed at the siege of candia but whose body had never been recovered, as all the narratives of that event agree in stating. He also told me that M. de Saint-Mars, who succeeded Pignerol as governor of the islands, showed great consideration for the prisoner that he waited on him at table, that the service was of silver, and that the clothes supplied to the prisoner were as costly as he desired, that when he was ill and in need of a physician or surgeon, he was obliged under pain of death to wear his mask in their presence, but that when he was alone he was permitted to pull out the hairs of his beard with steel tweezers, which were kept bright and polished. I saw a pair of these, which had been actually used for this purpose in the possession of M. de Formanois, nephew of Saint-Mars, and lieutenant of a free company raised for the purpose of guarding the prisoners. Several persons told me that when Saint-Mars, who had been placed over the Bastille, conducted his charge thither, the latter was heard to stay behind his iron mask. "'Has the king designs on my life?' To which Saint-Mars replied, "'No, my prince, your life is safe. You must only let yourself be guided.' I also learned from a man called Dubuisson, cashier to the well-known Samuel Bernard, 
who, having been in prison for some years in the Bastille, was removed to the Ile Saint Marguerite, where he was confined along with some others in a room exactly over the one occupied by the unknown prisoner. He told me that they were able to communicate with him by means of the flue of the chimney, but on asking him why he persisted in not revealing his name and the cause of his imprisonment, he replied that such an avowal would be fatal not only to him, but to those to whom he made it. Whether it were so or not, today the name and rank of this political victim are secrets, the preservation of which is no longer necessary to the state, and I have thought that to tell the public what I know would cut short the long chain of circumstances which everyone was forging according to his fancy, instigated thereto by an author whose gift of relating the most impossible events in such a manner as to make them seem true, has won for all his writings such success, even for his Vie de Charles Twelfth. This theory, according to Jacob, is more probable than any of the others. Beginning with the year 1664, he says, the Duc de Beaufort had, by his insubordination and levity, endangered the success of several maritime expeditions. In October 1666, Louis XIV remonstrated with him with much tact, begging him to try to make himself more and more capable in the service of his king by cultivating the talents with which he was endowed, and ridding himself of the faults which spoiled his conduct. I do not doubt, he concludes, that you will be all the more grateful to me for this mark of my benevolence towards you when you reflect how few kings have ever shown their good will in a similar manner. Ouvre de Louis XIV, Volume 5, page 388. Several calamities in the Royal Navy are known to have been brought about by the Duc de Beaufort. Monsieur Eugene Sue, in his Histoire de la Marine, which is full of new and curious information, has drawn a very good picture of the position of the Roi de Halle, the king of the markets, in regard to Colbert and Louis the Fourteenth. Colbert wished to direct all the manoeuvres of the fleet from his study while it was commanded by the naval grand master in the capricious manner, which might be expected from his factious character and love of bluster. Eugene Sue, Volume One, P.S. Justificative. In 1699, Louis Fourteenth sent the Duc de Beaufort to the relief of Candia, which the Turks were besieging. Seven hours after his arrival, Beaufort was killed in a sortie. The Duc de Nevailles, who shared with him the command of the French squadron, simply reported his death as follows. He met a body of Turks who were pressing our troops hard. Placing himself at the head of the latter, he fought valiantly, but at length his soldiers abandoned him, and we have not been able to learn his fate. Memoirs, the Duc de Nevaille, Book 4, page 243. The report of his death spread rapidly through France and Italy. Magnificent funeral services were held in Paris, Rome, and Venice, and funeral orations delivered. Nevertheless, many believed that he would one day reappear, as his body had never been recovered. Guy Patin mentions this belief, which he did not share, in two of his letters. Several wagers have been laid that Monsieur de Beaufort is not dead. O oh, Utinam! Guy Patin September 26, 1669. It is said that Monsieur de Vivonne has been granted by commission the post of vice-admiral of France for twenty years, but there are many who believe that the Duc de Beaufort is not dead, but imprisoned in some Turkish island. Believe this who may, I don't, he is really dead, and the last thing I should desire would be to be as dead as he. Ibid, January 14, 1670. The following are the objections to his theory. In several narratives written by eyewitnesses of the siege of Candia, says Jacob, it is related that the Turks, according to their custom, despoiled the body and cut off the head of the Duke de Beaufort on the field of battle, and that the latter was afterwards exhibited at Constantinople. 
and this may account for some of the details given by the Sandras Cortils in his Memoire de Marquis de Montbrun and his Memoire d'Artagnan, for one can easily imagine that the naked, headless body might escape recognition. M. Eugene Sue, in his Histoire de la Marine, Volume 2, Chapter 6, had adopted this view, which coincides with the accounts left by Philibert de Jarry and the Marquis de Ville, the MSS of whose letters and memoirs are to be found in the Bibliothèque de Rouen. In the first volume of the History of the Detention of the Philosophers and People of Letters at the Bastille, etc., we find the following passage. Without dwelling on the difficulty and danger of an abduction, which an Ottoman scimitar might any day during this memorable siege render unnecessary, we shall restrict ourselves to declaring positively that the correspondence of St. Mars from 1669 to 1680 gives us no ground for supposing that the governor of Pignerol had any great prisoner of state in his charge during that period of time, except Fouquet and Lausun. While we profess no blind faith in the conclusions arrived at by the learned critic, we would yet add to the considerations on which he relies another, vis-à-vis -vis that is most improbable that Louis the Fourteenth should ever have considered it necessary to take such rigorous measures against the Duc de Beaufort. Truculent and self-confident as he was, he never acted against the royal authority in such a manner as to oblige the king to strike him down in secret, and it is difficult to believe that Louis the Fourteenth, peaceably seated on his throne with all the enemies of his minority under his feet, should have revenged himself on the duke as an old frondeur. The critic calls our attention to another fact also adverse to the theory under consideration. The man in the iron mast loved fine linen and rich lace. He was reserved in character and possessed an extreme refinement, and none of this suits the portraits of the Roi de Halle, which contemporary historians have drawn. Regarding the anagram of the name Marchiali, the name under which the death of the prisoner was registered, Hic amiral, as a proof, we cannot think that the jailers of Pignerol amused themselves in propounding conundrums to exercise the keen intellect of their contemporaries, and moreover, the same anagram would apply equally well to the Count of Vermandois, who was made admiral when only twenty-two months old. Abbe Papon, in his roamings through Provence, paid a visit to the prison in which the Iron Mask was confined, and thus speaks. It was to the Ile Sainte Marguerite that the famous prisoner with the iron mask, whose name has never been discovered, was transported at the end of the last century. Very few of those attached to his service were allowed to speak to him. One day, as Monsieur de Saint Mars was conversing with him, standing outside his door in a kind of corridor, so as to be able to see from a distance everyone who approached, the son of one of the governor's friends, hearing the voices, came up. St. Mars quickly closed the door of the room, and rushing to meet the young man, asked him with an air of great anxiety if he had overheard anything that was said. Having convinced himself that he had heard nothing, the governor sent the young man away the same day, and wrote to the father that the adventure was like to have cost the son dear, and that he had sent him back to his home to prevent any further imprudence. I was curious enough to visit the room in which the unfortunate man was imprisoned on the 2nd of February, 1778. It is lighted by one window to the north, overlooking the sea, about fifteen feet above the terrace, where the sentries pace to and fro. This window was pierced through a very thick wall, and the embrasure barricaded by three iron bars, thus separating the prisoner from the sentries by a distance of over two fathoms. I found an officer of the free company in the fortress, who was nigh on fourscore years old. He told me that his father, who had belonged to the same company, had often related to him how a friar had seen something wa white floating on the water under the prisoner's window. On being fished out and carried to Monsieur de Saint-Mars, 
it proved to be a shirt of very fine material loosely folded together and covered with writing from end to end Monsieur de saint mars spread it out and read a few words then turning to the friar who had brought it he asked him in an embarrassed manner if he had been led by curiosity to read any of the writing the friar protested repeatedly that he had not read a line but nevertheless he was found dead in bed two days later this incident was told so often to my informant by his father and by the chaplain of the fort of that time that he regarded it as incontestably true the following fact also appears to me to be equally well established by the testimony of many witnesses i collected all the evidence i could on the spot and also in the larens monastery where the tradition is preserved a female attendant being wanted for the prisoner a woman of the village of mongan offered herself for the place being under the impression that she would thus be able to make her children's fortune but on being told that she would not only never be allowed to see her children again but would be cut off from the rest of the world as well she refused to be shut up with a prisoner whom it cost so much to serve i may mention here that at the two outer angles of the wall of the fort which faced the sea two sentries were placed with orders to fire on any boat which approached within a certain distance the prisoner's personal attendant died and the ile saint marguerite the brother of the officer whom i mentioned above was partly in the confidence of monsieur de saint mars and he often told how he was summoned to the prison once at midnight and ordered to remove a corpse and that he carried it on his shoulders to the burial place feeling certain it was the prisoner who was dead but it was only his servant and it was then that an effort was made to supply his place by a female attendant abbe papon gives some curious details hitherto unknown to the public but as he mentions no names his narrative cannot be considered as evidence voltaire never replied to le grand chancel who died the same year in which his letter was published Ferrand, desiring to revenge himself for the scathing portrait which voltaire had drawn of him in the Ecossais, called to his assistance a more redoubtable adversary than le grand chancel saint foix had brought to the front a brand new theory founded on a passage by hume in an article in the annee littéraire seventeen sixty eight volume four in which he maintained that the man in the iron mask was the duke of monmouth a natural son of charles the second who was found guilty of high treason and beheaded in london on the fifteenth of july sixteen eighty five this is what the english historian says it was commonly reported in london that the duke of monmouth's life had been saved one of his adherents who bore a striking resemblance to the duke having consented to die in his stead while the real culprit was secretly carried off to france there to undergo a lifelong imprisonment End of section two. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.